Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Hello, and thanks to everyone who is joining us for this podcast. Winston Churchill once said that in government, scientists should be on tap, but not on top. In the UK, at least, Churchill's dictum seems to have been followed. The creation of the post of Chief Scientific Advisor in the aftermath of the Second World War was not accompanied by a widespread embedding of science or scientific method in the heart of UK policymaking. From 2003 to 2018, the number of government scientists within the UK fell by 20%, while countries like Germany grew their government scientist numbers by more than 50%, Singapore by nearly 100%, and South Korea by nearly 150%. However, flawed pandemic preparedness plans and a limited grasp of the bioscience landscape across government has been laid bare by the pandemic, thrusting this issue firmly into the limelight. My name is Mark Lockridge. I'm a senior associate here at Global Council in the health and life sciences team. And today we'll be talking about what the science gap means for the UK's ability to compete with other nations, tackle major health challenges, or prepare for the next pandemic. To discuss this and more, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Rupert Lewis, Chief Science Policy Officer at the Royal Society, Andrew Croydon, Director of Skills and Education Policy at the Association of the British Pharmaceutical Industry, and Miranda Lutz, Global Council Senior Associate in Washington, DC. Um, so thanks everyone for joining us today. Um, Rupert, I'll start off with you. You were um, director of the Government Office for Science for several years. What, what's your view of how science is viewed across government and what's your experience of the scientific competence or, or lack thereof of the advisors and decision makers in government? Um, thank you, Mark, and, and thanks for uh, inviting me um, onto this podcast. Um, I think you're your opening comment uh, you know, on, on tap but not on top uh, highlights a real, a really important issue because quite often scientists are in the role of advisors. And if you look at the, the upper echelons of the civil service where the policy making, decision making takes place, not many of them are scientists. I think uh, roughly 1% of, uh, of, of the sort of fast track senior people are, have any kind of science background. Um, so in that sense, you've got a group of people who are policymakers who don't understand the science world very well, um, asking for advice, and you've got a group of science advisors who may not understand the policy world that well, giving advice. But there isn't there is a kind of third path which one one could explore, and that is scientists becoming policymakers. Um, then they would understand. They would you know, ask some pretty good questions, and and they'd be pretty well placed to uh, to receive the advice. Um, so that, that's one path. The, the, the other aspect I, I sort of highlight is over my time in government, which is sort of 17 years, there's sort of two countervailing trends. And one is that um, there's, there has been a really good appreciation of science in, in, in many cases, the foot and mouth ep, uh, epidemic and the, and the, uh, the um, BSC mad so-called cow, cow disease in 2001, 2002, that was a real wake up call. And that strengthened the science advisory system in government, the system of chief scientists and so on. And I think that's been well appreciated. Uh, the role of the government chief scientific advisor has gone from strength to strength um, in over that period. The thing that has really suffered though, which is the sort of countervailing trend, is science, government's own research budgets have really gone down. And uh, that was particularly uh, the case during the, the austerity uh, coalition period. Um, if you're 
like running a government department, you were looking for budgets to cut, which was the kind of ministerial steer at the time, it's easy to cut science um, because you know, the forward budget is, is not committed beyond say one to three years or so. Um, the problem if you cut science budgets, that say if you've got in an environment department, vets and scientists running a zoonotic disease program and you cut, you cut a significant amount of that budget or indeed all of it, why do you need those people to run that program anymore? You take out capability then, you take out people who understand the problems. Um, and you also take out, if, if you've got a science budget, there is at least an annual cycle of conversation about what science problems have we got? What do we, what do we need to spend the R&D on? And then there's answers come in and, you, and, and there's a sort of socialization of science there. Take the budgets out, you take out that socialization. And so you take out the science conversation. So it's not just about the money, it's also about the conversation. Um, so I, broadly speaking, I, I think, you know, the science advisory system has been, has been, has grown and has done well, but the, uh, the conversations about science in the more general policy community have gone down and, and the policy community themselves um, don't have much uh, science expertise. And, and do you think that means that sort of innovation that we're seeing do you think that's harder then for the government to sort of implement that and and make sure there's sort of greater uptake and do you think that's had an impact on how public services are delivered i think that's a very different question actually so there's 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 innovation which is innovation in the economy and innovation policy um and then there's public service innovation which which is sort of considered rather separately so you know the department for health will think about how can we drive innovation within our system um, the business department will think, how can we drive innovation across the whole economy? Now, we, we have a histo you know, historical issue there in that the UK R&D intensity has not been very, very competitive internationally. Um, the last spending review finally recognised that. And there's a, you know, a really healthy aspiration now to increase our R&D intensity, but only to 2.4% of GDP. So amongst OECD countries, we, we aspire to be average. Um, which is you know, better, than, better than not aspiring to be average, but we, we, we could have stronger aspirations than that. And there's always, you know, innovation in the economy is, is a complex issue. And there, there are, there, there's always gonna be a case for getting better and better at that. Our innovation spend particularly um, as, as part of our you know, government, government's R&D intensity um, has been quite weak. So you know, half a million or so, maybe 600, uh, sorry, half a billion, maybe 600 million or so. Again, the, the spending review uh, has recognized that and it's gonna go up um, to I think approximately a billion. Uh, this is the Innovate UK budget. The innovation in public services is a whole different question. Um, and it's highly variable. So, so if, you, if you look at health, um, the funding of the Medical Research Council and the National Institutes of Health Research has, has been protected. Um, successive chief medical officers, Sally Davis and Chris Whitty, uh, have, have played a very strong role there. But if you look at other public sector budgets, like in the Home Office and, uh, and the Communities Department, um, now the Leveling Up Department, um, they, their budgets have been cut right back. So, so uh, the role that those budgets play in innovation has really been curtailed. But there's another dimension which is it's going in the right direction. And this is the regulatory community. So if you, if you look at the Financial Conduct Authority as a regulator, 
they are real innovators. You know, they have they have what they call regulatory sandpits. They're very up on new technologies like blockchain and so on, and and, and various kinds of um, financial technology. And they are enlightened regulators. Um, and uh, the Better Regulation Executive is trying to drive the whole issue of smart regulation to drive innovation. So I think it's it's a separate question to government's own science capability. Um, and then within that there's economy-wide innovation and then there's departmental innovation. So they're um, somewhat different elements of the question. Thanks, Rupert. And Andrew, if we can just turn to the sort of skills element. Um, Rupert touched there upon the fact that only a tiny percentage of um, civil service fast streamers actually have a science background. And I think research from Cambridge University shows that only 4% of STEM graduates actually go into the civil service proper. How do you think we can sort of drive a greater number of STEM graduates into the civil service? Well, I have to say, um, thank you for inviting me on this podcast. And I think um, Dr. Um, Dr. Lewis has, has made a really good point there about scientists becoming policy advisors being one of the routes. Uh, and actually, we do see examples of this. Um, certainly, um, there's a few of such individuals in my organisation, uh, the Association of the British Pharmaceutical Industry. And when I look at some of the other organisations that are sort of within their similar field, um, we certainly see a degree of churn of those individuals amongst those roles. But perhaps um, this isn't necessarily filtering so much into the civil service. Um, that's obviously something to look into. Um, but I wonder if it's actually perhaps less about driving people into the civil service um, or indeed any sector for that matter, because of course you need the graduates to want to take on these roles. So I think for me, when I think about this, career choices, whether that's at the school age or the postgraduate age, they should really be informed choices. So it shouldn't be so much about which sector can shout the loudest to promote their careers, but rather providing the students, the parents, the guardians, the careers advisors, uh, and others, obviously, with the right materials to ensure that they can weigh up the pros and cons of the different job roles for their personal circumstances, for their skill set, for their qualifications, and obviously for their aspirations. So for me, I think, you know, potential employees need to see positive role models with whom they can identify. They need to see genuine demonstration of quality, diversity and inclusion in the workplaces that they're looking at as potential employers. They need to know they're not going to miss out on opportunities simply because of where they live or their family background. And they need to see that traditional academic and vocational routes can also equally lead to fulfilling careers. And that the people advising on careers need access to robust uh, labor market research. So for me, supporting informed career choices helps to ensure the right people with the right skills get the right jobs. Um, we then just obviously need to ensure there's enough of them to meet the demand across multiple sectors. And do you think, I mean, a lot of this work's been taken forward by um, Patrick Valance as chief scientific advisor. Um, it's interesting what you say there about having these sort of plenty of options open. Do you think there's a risk that if that works too successful, you could deprive one part of the economy of the skills it needs? Say you have lots of people going to the civil service rather than going into uh, life sciences sector proper. Uh, sort of, what do you think the risk is there? And do you think there's a way that you can sort of mitigate against that? You raise an interesting point, um, and, and perhaps it's worth me saying at this point that uh, Sir Patrick Valance himself is, is a great role model, um, and I would have every confidence in him to achieve significant results in this area. Um, so there could be some, some issues if you're in another sector, I suppose you could say. Um, but if I turn to my organisation, so the ABPI, um, we've actually just published my report on skills gaps analysis, 
um, in the industry. And whilst there are some encouraging improvements since the previous survey, which was 2019, such as skill shortages overall seeming to decrease, um, seven specific skills disciplines listed as top priority um, compared with 16 in the previous survey, so some definite movement in that sense. Um, and that's partly because some of the previously identified key areas of skill shortage, including biological and clinical science areas, have shown some clear signs of improvement. But there are nonetheless some areas of real concern remaining. Um, so, for example, major skills shortages reported in areas such as computational and digital skills. In fact, five of the seven top priority subjects where employers identified shortages were in these areas, reflecting the increased role of data and digital in life sciences, R&D, manufacturing, which, of course, is alongside its increased role in so many sectors. Um, so for us, you know, many of the skill shortages that um, I've just reported on are associated with the quantity of candidates rather than the quality. Um, so for us, that's obviously suggesting that, that growing demand for candidates with specific skills is being outstripped by the supply. And so obviously, if, if the civil service are looking to recruit more, that's only compounding that. But there are candidates with the right skills. There's just simply not enough of them. So that's a key area to, to focus on, I think. Um, if more potential employees are recruited by the civil service, then clearly the bottom line is that would exacerbate the situation. But that's not to say that we shouldn't be taking action anyway. And obviously, if it's for the greater good that they're needed in the civil service, equally amongst other sectors, then let's get to the root cause of the problem and try and solve that instead. Um, so that's why in our report, um, we've made some specific commitments to support STEM education, the acquisition of skills, um, alongside providing some very specific recommendations for government on which to take some action. Thanks, Andrew. Um Miranda, just looking across the pond now, um, it seems that the UK performs um, quite poorly against comparative nations. Some of the points that um, Rupert mentioned in terms of um, developmental R&D spend, um, but also looking at the number of STEM graduates in the civil service as well. Do you think this is a particularly British problem or do you think the US faces similar challenges? I think that there are certainly some similar challenges um, in the US. I think it's interesting that, you know, among federal government workers, about 17% of the workforce is are in STEM roles, which is relatively high when you consider just how big the private sector um, is in this space. I think that there are certainly a, a number of challenges. Um, in the US, it's, uh, some of them are more bureaucratic, you know, uh, confusing job postings, lengthy hiring processes, federal shutdowns that lead to pay freezes and um, the changes in, in leadership, um, you know, every political cycle. And that certainly has knock-on effects to the entire um, life sciences workforce in the U.S. But overall, in there, um, there are signs that the, the STEM workforce is relatively happy in the, in the civil service. Um, there was a recent RAND Corporation study that came out last year that showed that they are um, fairly uh, fairly compensated in, in the US. Um, private sector STEM workers make a little bit more, but not egregiously so. And uh, STEM workers in the, in the US government benefit from you know, robust benefits packages, um, slightly less working hours, uh, kind of things that help the, uh, the balance of um, the work-life balance. Um, but I think taking a, a step back and looking at overall, you know, R&D spend in the U.S. is is quite interesting. You know, in the 1960s, the U.S. federal government was responsible for the majority of R&D spending. 
And that has shifted pretty dramatically over the past um, several decades. So now the, the private sector makes up a, a significant share. So in, in 2019, the US federal government spent uh, $140 billion on R&D while the private sector spent over $464 billion. So that's a pretty significant um, transition. And that's something that policymakers are pretty concerned about. Um, they want to see the, the US government get back in the game, as it were, for, uh, for R&D spending. And we've seen that, um, you know, particularly post-pandemic in terms of, um, uh, you know, public health, but also in the midst of, uh, you know, kind of resurgence of desire to com better compete with China on a, a range of um, technologies, on a range of um, biohealth um, issues. And so I think that there will be some, some changes to how the U.S. approaches that. There was um, legislation introduced uh, just a few weeks ago that would have significant um, impacts on the National Science Foundation and the Department of Energy Science uh, directorates and would increase their budget quite significantly. And so I think that this is something policymakers are uh, attuned to, I guess, more from a, a national security perspective. Um, and then um, just to, to pick up on some of the, the points that Rupert made about, um, you know, the lack of policymakers um, with, you know, scientific expertise. I think there's only two PhD scientists um, in Congress, maybe one PhD mathematician, there's 500, <laughs> 500 plus uh, members of Congress. So that are that is not good, um, not good odds, I would say. Um, and the, the US certainly struggles from some of the, the similar challenges that Rupert outlined with, uh, you know, scientists being um, in the role of advisors, but they do not hold decision making roles. And that has been, um, you know, even consistent under the Biden administration that has said we want to, um, you know, return to science, follow science, you know, the uh, people that are making the, the decisions are um, still politicians, they're not <laughs> scientists. Rupert, I think you wanted to come in there. Yeah, I was going to um, echo Miranda's point, actually. So, um, yeah, it's one thing having scientists in the civil service, but what about the politicians? Um, in the UK, very similar to the US, really low percentage in parliament. So as the body that holds the government to account, they're not that empowered to hold the government to account on its science capability and science performance. I was going to cite a, a US example of, um, of uh, something that looked really interesting. Um, coming back to your earlier question about scientists coming into the civil service, um, when I was a bench scientist, I didn't really know what the civil service did. I mean, the civil service doesn't market itself that well. Um, and it was only, it was a mid-career change for me. So, um, it, it, you know, the civil service could, could do better there and could just take on more of their fast stream as, as scientists. But there's an organization in the US called the 314, um, the first three numbers of pi, and, and they deliberately um, find scientists who they think um, might become interested in becoming politicians and, and they train them and, and, they, and they support them to, uh, to, to run for office. And that's, that's quite interesting. Uh, so the whole issue of politicians and their science background, I think, is a really important dimension. I think a lot of the sort of um, issue here seems to be uh, cultural as well. Um, and Rupert, I think I'd quite like to ask you quite a um, 
I don't know, curveball question, but um, Dominic Cummings was somebody who seemed to get science uh, for all his flaws. Um, and he seemed to be driving an agenda from the centre. Um, do you think having a Cummings-like figure who's sort of foisting this change on the civil service uh, is a good thing? Or do you think that's counterproductive? I think that the, just talking about Cummings probably puts a shiver down the spine of a lot of spans who might be listening. But well, what do you think about that? Um, well, I've never met uh, Dominic, so I can't comment personally on him. I, I, I think, I guess, if, if you foist anything on anybody, then they're not going to react that well. However, um, I, I would suggest that, you know, him as a champion for science, uh, the scientists and government thought at last, you know, somebody somebody recognises um, uh, the value of, of, of the field. Um, it's always going to be good to have senior influential champions of science, um, who people who get science, especially in the treasury, because um, I guess that we've we've got this one thing that is really underappreciated, I think, and, and is always something which is debated. It's kind of if you're an economist in the treasury, it's probably um, tempting to think, um, why am I finding basic, basic research? What's the public value of that? And it's not very easy to demonstrate that path because the path can take 30, 40 years. Um, and so when you've got other pressing uh, priorities, like, you know, the, funding the National Health Service, et cetera, um, funding education, um, cost of living crisis and, and things like that, um, the case, it, 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 it might be uh, hard to immediately grasp uh, the case for, for basic research. However, basic research is the long-term future of innovation. It's where innovation comes from. It's just not a linear pathway. So having senior champions to understand that um, is, is incredibly valuable. You know, if, you, if you look at the pandemic, some key science areas, the, the polymerase chain reaction, PCR, that's, that's done all the testing and all the sequencing, it got us the sequence from, from China to the rest of the world in a very short period of time. That was a piece of obscure research by an American scientist in 1967, Thomas Brocker, um, a curious microbiologist. Similarly, you know, the discovery of RNA in the 1960s, uh, the discovery of the, 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 the lipid science um, that delivers mRNA vaccines, 1960s. Now, those people never anticipated or probably never imagined that one day their science would be saving lives and saving economies from a global pandemic. But that's, that's the reality. And so having senior people who understand how that system works, and that it's not a choice between basic research and, and innovation, they are two sides of the same coin. And, and, and you know, basic research is your long-term future. Having any senior champions who, who get that is a good thing. Um, Andrew, I mean, we, we look at the sort of major health challenges that face the country and they're, they're pretty daunting. Obesity, cardiovascular disease, dementia, um, sadly, the next pandemic. Um, but what we have seen is that pharma has responded in this pandemic um, incredibly strongly. Um, but what do you think the government needs to do to, to work with the pharma sector more effectively? Um, and particularly to secure the science skills of the future. Thank you. Yes. Well, I think in answer to this, I'm going to uh, refer once again to my skills gap analysis that we've just published, um, <clears throat> not least because the, the Minister for Skills um, at the Department for Education, Alex Burkhart, MP, said in response to the report that the government want to help people step into digital jobs and plug the skills gaps in our economy, which bear in mind, that's where we've identified these issues. And at the same time, we had the Minister for Science, Research and Innovation at the Department for um, Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, so Beige, uh, George Freeman MP, provide the foreword to the report. Um, and he stated that the report sets out a blueprint for how government and industry can work together to grow the life sciences talent base, provide opportunities for lifelong learning 
and reskill the sector's workforce to meet the evolving skills demands of the next decade. So our recommendations we've put in that report include stimulating adoption of emerging skills to meet demand by extending pilot schemes, looking at the newly funded institutes of technology and how they could be used perhaps to prioritize the application of digital skills, say for in, in the life sciences sector, um, looking at how we can ensure early career researchers are centralized within a sort of broader skills policy um, and address some of the apprenticeship funding and, and review flexibilities in terms of apprenticeship training models as well so that they can specifically meet the needs of life sciences employers. So I think it's about working together on uh, a number of different levels, looking at different parts of skills policy and how that links in with education and looking at multiple points within the uh, education system as well, not just targeting, uh, you know, people who are going to graduate, for example, but looking at multiple touch points. I think there's there's scope there and, and a wherewithal to, to move forward with the agenda for, for making that happen. Uh, do you think because of the experience of the pandemic that the the government is a lot more receptive to to what pharma has to say as, as a sector now um, because they've obviously delivered such big um, benefits to the country, not least through the vaccine. Do, do you think there is now a, a more of a listening mode now? I, th I think there's certainly a, a recognition for what the industry can do. Uh, and obviously, uh, you know, the, the industry was working, you know, there were many critical workers clearly and continue to be. Um, and, uh, you know, they are they're doing a sterling job but within the realms of who's been working on what, certainly the pharmaceutical industry um, made, uh, you know, worked rapidly to respond. And uh, I think that obviously has got the attention of, you know, people be it within government and outside of government. I think it's shone a light on it. Uh, and obviously people draw their own conclusions, how they, how they feel about things, but it has helped to educate people, I think, and shine a light on it. And as part of that, that would be government being aware of that. Yeah, I mean, I just wanted to echo um, some of Andrew's comments. And in, in the US, I think one of the biggest lessons learned is, you know, just how much can be achieved when government and the pharmaceutical sector and the whole entire private sector are actually working together. And in the US, that looked uh, very much at cutting some of the bureaucratic red tape um, at the CDC and, and FDA. Um, and I think that there will have some, uh, you know, long tail effects for how the U.S. conducts research, remote clinical trials. Um, you know, there's a lot of exciting things that happened in the, the pandemic. I mean, obviously, it was um, a, a public health crisis, but in terms of innovative processes and um, new, new regulatory pathways, I think that there um, is a lot to be built on. I mean, the government has uh, published documents uh, on people and culture strategy in science, and they make almost no mention of education. And, and you know, it's only going to be a couple of years before the people in the education system are the new, are the new STEM workforce. So uh, from our perspective uh, in the Royal Society, this is a real gap. There's a, there's a, there's the sort of real lack of join up between um, skills and workforce policies and the education policy. And, and there are such um, big diversity issues um there, there are it's not it's not quite half but it's something approaching half the schools in the country don't produce a single girl with a physics a level um which means they can't become engineers for example um and they can't do that if they haven't done a gcse and they make those decisions sort of 12 13 years old so so um the whole 
gearing of education to STEM uh, and the recognition that this is where the workforce is coming. And, and you know, if you add to that the COVID effect on people in schools in the last couple of years, um, there, are, there are real pipeline problems building up. And uh, you know, I, I really think government could um, connect these more. It's, it's slightly unhelpful that, that I guess that um, you know, the science minister uh, is in the business department and the education is a different department. Uh, they, they could do more joint working, I think, and uh, more, more uh, joining up essentially about um, what, what do they need to do in the education system to, to gear up for, uh, uh, to solve the sort of skills gaps that Andrew's been talking about. Um, and, and this goes back to teachers as well. Um, there is a huge shortage of um, STEM qualified teachers uh, and it's not uncommon for teachers teaching STEM subjects not to have a STEM degree. So there are, there are big problems in the education system with respect to the STEM workforce that, that could get more recognition from uh, ministers who lead on innovation and science policy. Just taking a step back now and I think it's probably fair to say that we might not have been having this discussion if it wasn't for the pandemic, um, which is a bit of a shame, but um, I think it shows how important this issue now is. Um, do you think that if we do put science at the heart of government, um, there's a risk that this makes science more partisan? I mean, um, Miranda, we've seen in the US that the politicization of science has been um, not the best thing, uh, particularly around masks and vaccine mandates and so on. Um, do you think that the politicization of science could pose a challenge to businesses? I think it's going to be less challenging for businesses and more challenging for for policymaking. Um, I mean, putting uh, science at the heart of decision making is is challenging. In the U.S., you had uh, epidemiologists calling for schools to remain, you know, locked down, while at the same time you had pediatricians and psychologists um, saying that schools need to be open for for children's mental health. So there has to be a, a body of policymakers that can kind of absorb all these different viewpoints and make decisions effectively. I think that latter step is what kind of has has broken down in the in the U.S. a little bit, unfortunately, because as we've discussed, um, policymakers don't necessarily have the the foundational knowledge for how to assimilate all of the, these different um, data points uh, and and make the the right decision. I think that for the the business community, um, you know, there's always going to be robust interest in the in the life sciences market in the US. I mean we're a, a leader in the in the field and you know US policymakers want to ensure that that remains the case. So in terms of um, you know available jobs, in terms of you know spending, I mentioned earlier that the private sector is the largest um, RD spender uh, by far. I think that that will continue. Um, but I do think that there will be challenges for the, like I said, for the for the policymakers, um, you know, how to balance or uh, how to balance um, science with uh, their political agenda is is difficult when political ideologies get so embedded with differing viewpoints on on science, and I think that that is reversible, but it's going to take a lot of work from, from politicians to cut down on the rhetoric that has really kind of contributed to this situation and put everyone in these very entrenched camps. Andrew, I think you wanted to come in there. Thank you. Yeah, I was just going to pick up on the piece uh, where you mentioned about, you know, would we be having this conversation had it not been um, for the pandemic? Uh, and I, if I think back to the end of 2019, I actually remember going to hear Sir Patrick Balance deliver the case annual lecture. 
Um, and at that time, he was talking about trying to get more, uh, you know, guaranteeing some form of scientific advice and input across all the different government departments, which at the time I thought, yes, definitely, because, you know, there's not necessarily life sciences, but so many different aspects of science um, touch on all different uh, areas that different departments are working on, whether that's sustainability, whether it's agriculture and so on. So there's there's definitely a need for that. I think where the, the pandemic has sort of slightly sort of changed the narrative is where it's had an impact on how we get there. So coming back to um, Rupert's point about, you know, the effect on the education system, we still don't know fully what that is. Uh, certainly a lot of the research at the moment would appear to sort of indicate it's the primary age that have perhaps suffered the most from the from the loss of schooling and of course now that does mean they're having to focus primarily on on maths and english um and sadly that's probably going to be the expect expense of, of other subjects but if we think about the, all this the skills that are needed across many different sectors then you know i think in terms of knock-on effect we've yet to see the worst of that yet i think when it comes to um Patrick Valence's agenda, he's probably trying to do, and I think he, he may have said as much, trying to do uh, with science what um, was done with economics, say, 40, 50 years ago and make it pretty central. I think he's um, in discussions with Lord O'Donnell, former head of the civil service, about that. So um, maybe departments would sort of begin to listen now that we've had this pandemic. But certainly you're right to say, Andrew, that this agenda was, was ongoing beforehand. Um, Rupert, if you want to add to that. Yeah, I think I'm not sure if the politicization is that much to do with science. So, uh, you know, you, you would get um, people making libertarian arguments. That's that's an ideological position. Of course, science is relevant, but it's not the basis of the ideological position. I would hope that um, the pandemic has may all may almost have the opposite effect. So uh, who knew uh, two and a half years ago uh, what an R0 value was? Um, or, uh, or, or uh, what what um, uh, T cells were, for example. Now, you, you know, every journalist in every broadsheet and tabloid in the UK has been writing about these things for a couple of years. They are they are the discourse. Uh, you know, they're, they're common currency now. Um, so, in, in a sense, it switched people on to science in a big way. Um, I would hope that um, that awareness is a cross-party issue and then of course ideological perspectives are an overlay on that but that's not that's not a, a science issue um, and and Patrick um, uh, one of the things that he's done which again I would hope would be a, a really long-term thing is he's created a, a, a the office of science and technology strategy right in the heart of government created a cabinet committee chaired by the prime minister um, to to have science as a better input into decision making but um, again the every, you know, policymakers um, know that you know, science is just one input. Um, science advice, economic advice, maybe advice from social research. And then if you give uh, you know, recommending decisions, you need to take into account feasibility, acceptability, risk, cost. Um, that will always be true. Um, you know, decisions are not made on, on the basis of science alone. So from policymaking perspective, putting strengthening science um, is a good thing, but it's it's not at the expense of other things. It's 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 getting uh, you know it's it's getting the the consideration of evidence in the broad sense done better. I think, um, and your your point on two cultures uh, is a good one. You know, hopefully, what was done for economics in the fifties and sixties will 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 uh, will now create a more broad broad based evidence perspective for policymakers to work with. 
Well, thank you everyone for uh, all your sage advice and words there. Um, as always, if you, your business or your investments are exposed to the challenges we've just discussed, don't hesitate to get in touch. Um, you can find contact details for myself, Miranda, and our teams on the GC website at www.global-council.com or via the link in the podcast notes. Um, it remains for me just to say my thanks to Dr. Rupert Lewis, Andrew Croydon, and Miranda Lutz, and thank you to you for listening. For more insights, blogs, and analysis, you can visit our website, www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council. Thank you.